interesting retreat for me because it's a most unusual situation where you have so many people who've been with so many teachers, done so many kinds of retreats, <laughs> going through the the questionnaire, people have had all kinds of different meditation techniques and approaches. Some people without, some people here for the first time, and others that have been on with almost every teacher there is. <laughs> it's quite a bit daunting, actually, to. to try to, uh, say, bring uh, something into that will really try to help you in your practice. Since none of you are really students of mine, you know, it's kind of dropping in there from nowhere, and trying to figure out how to teach something that would, uh, say, convey, that would give you something helpful with whatever method or teacher you happen to prefer. One thing, I'm trying to put, put meditation into a context, a traditional context, is what Buddhist, how Buddhist monks can help, because um, we're, we are the inheritors of a tradition. Coming from the, the Theravada school of Buddhism, at least we, we assume or we believe that, that we are direct uh, descendants of the Buddha, established the Dhamma Vinaya and and the order of bhikkhus and and the whole uh, the robes the form the whole thing is we believe is that we are direct uh, inheritors of that teaching from the original Buddha. Then to to use the four noble truths as the uh, as the that's um, the, the the unique teaching of the Buddha. Really, because uh, even that there were, and it's one that was truly unique in, in Buddhism as a religion, is that it it doesn't have a kind of metaphysical uh, doctrine to offer. It's not it's not approaching uh, the human condition from above. It starts from below, from the existential anguish of being born with this, the dukkha, the suffering that all human beings share. So it, it's not, it doesn't get into theology or doctrines of, of uh, the nature of God or the, the ultimate, it doesn't, doesn't try to, to define or, or put into words or symbols the ultimate reality. So that the, the Four Noble Truths uh, are a, a way of pointing directly to uh, the ignorance of a human being's mind. When, we're, when we are ignorant, when we are not enlightened, then of course we, we create suffering. Our life it tends to be a reaction. We, as I've been pointing out in previous talks, that just being born into, into a human body like this means that we are subjected to all kinds of out, external 
uh, sensory impingement, some of which is pleasant, some of which is very unpleasant, and, and some neutral. Now this is what we just have to accept, that, that birth uh, implies that that, that, that being born in a, in a separate form such as this, that we have to bear with whatever happens to it. It's aging, it's, it's getting old, uh, whatever impinges onto it during the lifetime, during the lifespan we have, uh, the, the tendency towards sickness and disease, physical pain, uh, and then death. We all have to bear with a lifetime where those we love are, are we're separated from, the people we love die. Uh, we, we are involved with with all kinds of worldly conditions, such as wars and terrorism and strife and depressions and so forth, where which we have no real control over, which oftentimes we're just the innocent victims or bystanders of of very painful, very unpleasant sensory impingement in human situations. We're born into families that also sometimes have tremendous problems with parents and and uh, siblings and, and a society where everything is confused or distorted or uh, painful in, in various ways, emotionally painful experiences we've all had from our families and our society. Ignorance, then in this sense of abhicca, the Pali word abhicca, means not knowing the truth, not, not seeing clearly, uh, not knowing these Four Noble Truths, not having penetrated these Four Noble Truths in their three aspects, twelve stages. <laughs> well, this, is, this is Theravada Buddhism. It's, it, it has filled um, with these kind of teachings. With, 37 Bodhiya Dhammas and 22 Indriyas. <laughs> now, the, just to, to uh, to uh, recite the Four Noble Truths again, there's uh, suffering or dukkha. And uh, now this is the first Noble Truth. There is dukkha. There is suffering. The second noble truth, there is an origin or, or the arising of suffering. Suffering is, not, is something that begins and it arises as an origin. And then there is, an, there is the cessation of suffering, is the third noble truth, is the insight into cessation, that suffering ceases. The fourth noble truth is called the Eightfold Path, which is right understanding, or perfect seeing is one interpretation. Seeing, uh, samaditi, or the, the, the Pali word for the, fir- for, for the first step on the Eightfold Path is samaditi, which I prefer this translation of perfect seeing. Seeing not with the eye, but with the wisdom eye, beyond all doubt, seeing clearly the truth of the way it is. Then from perfect seeing is perfect um, resolution, or what we when when you understand and see something clearly, then your 
your mind is uh, is determined to to do what is is enlightened, what is right, rather than being confused and being caught up in vacillation uh, or or cruel or uh, useless practices. So there's perfect seeing, then perfect resolve, then perfect speech, perfect action, perfect livelihood, perfect effort, perfect mindfulness, perfect concentration. Everything's perfect. Now the insight into each of these truths is there's three aspects to each truth. Now the aspects are, it's a, like a formula where you you have, uh, the, there is suffering. Now, this is just, now don't, don't think this is anything uh, difficult. It's whenever you're feeling confused, doubtful, discontented, whatever, whatever form, no matter how minor it is, they say, there is suffering. It's the willingness of, of an individual human being to look directly and admit suffering into, so that the suffering that one is having is, is admitted in a fully conscious way. It's not, it's not theoretical suffering, about the suffering of Ethiopian people or, or some, somebody far away. I remember attending a, a, the World Congress of Faith in, in England one time. They had a, a, a weekend in, uh, I was invited. And they had people from, uh, from all different religions there. And, and the theme was a funny, was a funny title called Creative Suffering. And, I'd, and this is what they, everybody was supposed to talk about, was creative suffering. So it was, and I was interested to see what, what people, what different people describe suffering as being. You know, a rabbi, a very prominent rabbi in London, talked about, uh, he said, he would, he'd been a, a, a victim of the Holocaust as a child, and, 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 and he'd really made it in England. He looked very affluent, posh kind of rabbi. And, <laughs> and he, said, he said, for suffering, let's not talk about it. Let's talk about life. And he takes a bottle of wine, pours himself a glass of wine. Well, that is, uh, well, that's fair enough. He didn't really, didn't really, <laughs> let's call that more creative happiness than creative. <laughs> Then, then, the, then a, an American theologian, no, no, it was a, some, I think a, some American, but it was a, the Russian Orthodox priest, talked about suffering, about having acne when you're 15 years old. <laughs> and it went on like that. It, but, the act, but nobody seemed to really get to the actual dukkha of, that we all have. It was either being... A, in a prison camp, uh, a Nazi prison camp, or having acne when you're 15 years old, or your girlfriend runs away with, an, with, an, with another man, or something like this. But the actual suffering of dukkha is, is what we experience in, in daily life, when we're unenlightened, when we just uh, react to the sensory impingement that we, that we all feel. So the first aspect the first insight in, uh, uh, of this noble truth is that there is suffering. Then 
The second one is that once you admit suffering, then the insight comes, it should be fully understood. This suffering has to be investigated, has to be really looked into, not just dismissed with a glass of wine. Or, <laughs> but it, it is to be looked into, to, to find, to go to it, to really accept the suffering, the dukkha. And then through that acceptance and that, uh, that it should be understood, then there is the realization that suffering, now I really understand what dukkha is. And so that's the formula. There is the, a statement, there is suffering, it should be understood, and then the, through examining, through looking at your own dukkha, then there is the realization that this insight knowledge, that you really understand it, you know what it is. The, the second noble truth follows the same formula. It is, there is uh, the origin of suffering called samudhaya. Samudhaya is the Pali word for the origin. Dukkha samudhaya, origin of suffering. And it should be, and this, this origin, there is this origin, and it comes from attachment to desire, from clinging, grasping of desire for sense pleasure, desire to become, desire to get rid of pain or misery. So that there's three kinds of desire that we grasp. So that this, the, the second noble truth is that there is an origin to suffering, uh, which is the grasping of desire. Then the second aspect of this is, it should be let go of. We should let go of desire. So that the this is the insight, in, insight knowledge of letting go of desires. Not getting rid of them, but letting go of them. Then, then the knowledge, insight knowledge of that we have actually let go of desire. When you let go of something, you know you've let go. And that's an insight. Then the third noble truth is the niroda, or the cessation of suffering, dukkha niroda. There is cessation to suffering. Suffering ceases. It should be fully realized. That cessation should be fully realized. And then through the examination of cessation, because things that cease inside your mind, things that you let go of, they will cease. And you will know that they cease. It should be fully realized, not just theoretically or intellectually accepted, but realized, made, made to be real, a, a kind of real understanding of cessation. And then the, when you uh, examine cessation and you, you investigate it, you realize that, and then the, the, the insight knowledge that you have understood the, and, and realize cessation of suffering. You know when there is no suffering. When suffering arises, it ceases. This is known, clearly understood, clearly realized. Then the fourth noble truth, there is the path out of suffering, which is the Eightfold Path. There is a way out of suffering through right understanding or perfect seeing. It should be fully developed. And then the knowledge of, through your practice that this path has been fully developed. Now notice that there's, a, there's a, the understanding of the problem, isn't it? There is suffering. Uh, it should be understood. 
it, it has been understood. There is the origin of suffering. It should be let go of, and then the knowledge that you have let go, you've learned how to let go of desire. There is the cessation of suffering. It should be uh, fully realized, and then the knowledge that, that comes from the realization that you understand, you have that really gut understanding of realization, of the, the realization that, that there is cessation of suffering, and then the Eightfold Path. It should be developed, and the knowledge, insight knowledge, uh, that it has been fully developed. Uh, understanding, letting go, uh, realization, and development. These are, say, the, the using this, this formula of the Four Noble Truths as a way of, of looking into the actual experience of human suffering, desire, attachment, all forms of fear, uh, the human condition itself, Everything to be looked into and examined. Everything becomes Dhamma for us. And everything is, is helping us to realize and to understand, to let go of everything, to be able to develop in this lifetime, this path in which we are, can no longer be deluded or caught up in the illusions and the appearances and the conditions, conditioning of our life. Now, for this retreat, the remainder of this retreat, uh, having had the weekend, the weekenders, uh, and then the then the then the uh, ten-day retreat members, and so forth, it's been quite a quite a challenge <laughs> to try to uh, to try to provide some kind of teaching. Now, I don't, because you, some of you, most of you, or many of you have had so many different teachers and methods and techniques, so I don't want to really provide any, any other techniques to you or, or methods. Uh, like if some of you get confused about walking slow or walking in an ordinary way. Well, if, you know, if you, it doesn't really matter that much if you, uh, one walking slowly is, and noting each movement of your foot is a very concentrated way of walking, and you're developing concentration that way. You you become very concentrated on your on what you're doing, on just the the movement of your feet, and subtle movements of your feet, and that become very clear. So that is a concentration exercise. Uh, the reason why I recommend ordinary walking. Is because what what I'm trying to uh, present to you is just a form, an ordinary form that is uncomplicated, just an ordinary pace going from here to there. And there's nothing complicated, nothing to concentrate on, just to to really just learn to accept the limitations of that as it is. To learn to just be prepared to accept that, doing that for for an hour. Uh, without feeling you have to look at anything or develop anything, but just be with the walking, just ordinary walking. And as you 
submit to the limitation of that, of just an hour of walking from this point to that point in an ordinary pace, uh, as you say, keep bringing your attention to this ordinary process, you eventually just will, will accept the limitation and you'll be able to watch, just, just be aware of what's happening to your mind, the, the, the doubt, the, if, you're, if you're used to slow walking, then you, then you start thinking, well, I'm not really getting anywhere with this, or if you, you know, what should I do, is this all there is, or uh, surely there's more to it than this or your mind will wander a lot and you feel frustrated by it. But this is, is just merely a simple form uh, that we accept in order to watch, to be mindful for an hour within this, the restrictions and limitations of that, uh, of, of, of that, of, of that form. Now, you don't get so concentrated, you don't get into such a highly concentrated state that way, but it is, it is a, uh, a way of reflecting on suffering, the origin, cessation, and the way out of suffering. <laughs> you can actually observe, what is suffering? <laughs> and you examine, you watch what you're doing, what you're attached to, if you're in the state of doubt or confusion, or you want something more, or you don't want to do it, or, or whatever, it, you're you're in a, in a position to observe what is suffering. Really ask yourself during this retreat, what is dukkha, what is desire? Uh, to, to be asked to do something for an hour and then to, to, to act, you know, it's something quite harmless, not, at least it, it's not harmful. It's, uh, it's, it's un, totally uncomplicated. Uh, Anyone can walk back and forth. <laughs> it's ordinary, it's not special. I mean, even though it is maybe special in the fact that you, you wouldn't do that for an hour in any other situation, but it is. It's just an ordinary pace in which you can examine this, uh, what is dukkha, its origin, and become aware of cessation. Because when, when there's cessation of suffering, then there's just the walking. It's just the way it is. It's just the movement of the body from this point to that point. And one can be completely at peace with the, way, with the body as it's walking. It, we needn't create problems. We, we needn't think that there's anything special to do or that we have to attain or achieve anything because that's the desire to become, isn't it? When your practice is all based on achievement and attaining of, of concentration and samadhi and, and insight and all that, then you are actually caught in the desire to become something. When you're caught in the desire to get rid of something, you want to get rid of your kilesas, get rid of your defilements, get rid of, uh, of doubt, get rid of, of anxiety and fear. To, to, to want to get rid of something you have that you don't like. To know that is as Vipavadana, a desire to, to get rid of something. If you're, uh, if, if you're walking back and forth and you, and you, have, and you desire to, to eat or drink or, or have sexual relations or whatever, the desire for sense pleasure, 
gamadanha. So that you you can see that that there's a desire uh, can arise for 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 if you're bored, this is boring, uh, unexciting. Then you'd like to be doing something that is maybe sensually very exciting or at least fulfilling, like eating food or drinking something, drinking a cup of tea or having a biscuit, uh, a cookie or whatever. <laughs> having an evening meal. <laughs> so, gamadana is, is a desire for sense, sense pleasure. Uh, Pawadana, desire to become. We're not content with just walking from here to there. We want to become something. We want it to be something that we gain something or achieve something from. So then uh, to, to just think that we have to let go of our self-interest and, and desire to be just content with walking from this point to that point and then turning around and going back from, from here over to there and from there over to here and for an hour. Now that is, is, you know, even though that sounds, uh, that's, I mean, it, uh, it sound, um, sounds like a simplification, sounds simple enough to do, but actually be able to be fully mindful walking from this point to that point, not just mindful of walking, but fully, the mind fully open, and then there's no suffering, there's just one is, is at ease with, with, with the way it is. Walking is, is, a, is a pleasant enough physical thing to do. It's not painful, it's not an unpleasant thing. You know, unless you have a, a arthritis in your knees or something, then, that, then there's pain. But ordinarily, ordinarily, just the normal walking of the body is, is quite all right. It's not particularly exciting, but it's not painful or unpleasant. So the mind is, is opening to the way it is, that, that there is walking and that it's just this. Unless there's a, a particular danger like the, the um, house catches on fire or bandits uh, raid the place, <laughs> then, then we have to, to let go of just this walking back and forth and do something else. <laughs> but say, uh, discounting the, the possibilities that, that probably that these, that the probability that bandits will, will attack uh, this uh, center or that <laughs> it will catch on fire, we can assume that everything is safe enough where we can feel perfectly at ease in walking back and forth for an hour. And the investigation, looking into dukkha, uh, there is dukkha. What, what is it? If you're, if you're confused, that's suffering, isn't it? Confusion, being attached to confusion. What should I do? Doubt, uncertainty, is uh, being attached to this is suffering. Being bored with it, being averse to it, not wanting it, wanting to get something from it, wanting it to be more than what it is, is suffering. Uh, so that you're, you're really looking at how your mind works and wanting, thinking that it should be more than this, that it should be, or that this isn't right, or that this isn't what you want to do, or confused by it, because another teacher says to, you have to do it slowly. And then you think, 
which way should I do it? Ajahn Sumedho says, ordinary. The other teacher says, very slowly. Which is the right way? <laughs> That's a, that, is a, that is a suffering, isn't it? To feel that way, be caught in that kind of thinking. Is, is Ajahn Sumedho wrong and the other teacher right? Is the other teacher wrong and Ajahn Sumedho's right? Who's right? Who's wrong? What's wrong? <laughs> That's suffering, isn't it? Now, I'm just uh, saying, pointing to, to dukkha, to suffering, for you to say, there is suffering, to admit it, rather than to, to uh, be caught and lost into this suffering. Then, when there is suffering, then, you, then, then go to, to your body, to the feeling of it. When, you're, when you feel confused or uncertain or, or anguished or depressed or something, to, or, or greedy or whatever, to really observe the feeling, to, to look into suffering more and more, not just intellectually accept it and, and, and analyze it but to, uh, from, from above, but really look at, at how it actually is as an experience, physically, emotionally. So you, you're, you're really going into understanding, looking deeply into, into the suffering you're experiencing, even if it's uh, just a silly thing, like uh, feeling rebellious or, or, or angry or annoyed with somebody. Just, it doesn't, the suffering doesn't have to be uh, a kind of terribly important or like being uh, tortured by demons or anything. Just, just being slightly irritated or upset or slightly confused. Or just greedy for, for some kind of gross thing. I just want to go and eat pizza and hamburgers. <laughs> Look at that. What does that feel like? Just greed for something, even though you know it's crude or stupid, rather than judging it in its quality, uh, take the opportunity to really look at what that is, to understand there is suffering, it should be understood, and then the insight that, yes, this is, this is definitely suffering, I understand it now. Then, then the arising of suffering, like desire, uh, this looking at, at the desire for sense pleasure, desire to become, desire to get rid of. You're now looking at suffering from the position of, of looking at desire, the nature of desire, to know desire. We're not judging desire. Desire to be enlightened is a good desire, isn't it? It's not that, it, that that's a bad desire. I mean, oftentimes the word desire in English conveys a, a kind of negative meaning, but one can have good desire, desire to help all sentient beings, desire to to uh, help the people in uh, the starving people in Ethiopia, desire to save the world from nuclear holocaust and so forth. These are desires. Oh, they can be desires to 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 be the one who pushes the button, <laughs> or whatever. And bad desires, neutral desires, but we're looking at, at desire, which is or dunha. Desire for sense pleasures, like having, looking at beautiful things or hearing uh, lovely sounds. Desire for fragrant odors and desire for uh, delicious food. Desire for pleasant bodily feelings. Desire for uh, intellectual pleasures, interesting intellectual pleasures. 
then bhavadana, desire to become something. Most of us want to become something good. We want to become Buddhas or Bodhisattvas or Arahants or, or, or stream enterers at least, or just a little better than, than we were when we came here. We desire to become. So we're not saying that that desire to become is bad, but to know it for what it is, to know desire. Because we're not desires. Desires are something we can see because we're not desires. And wisdom, this ability to use wisdom, allows us to see desire. Desire can't see wisdom. So as long as you're attached to desire, you'll always bypass wisdom. You'll, you'll miss it every time. As long as you're attached to desire, even the finest aspirations and the most noble desires that a human being could ever possibly have, as long as there's attachment to them, you will, you will miss wisdom. Wisdom will... You will pass it over, you'll not see it. So wisdom is something that we use. Now, now listen closely to this. <laughs> wisdom is, is something that we... is not lacking. It's not anything that we don't have. It's just something we need to learn how to use. You don't gain wisdom. Uh, like you, you don't have any now and you have to study and do something in order to gain it. All we're doing really in meditation is learning how to use wisdom. It's already everyone, you know, the, there's no lack of it. There's nobody that is without it. It's just that maybe we don't, we don't, we aren't aware of it. We don't know how to use it. So that in this sense of Buddha wisdom, it's not something you ever attain or achieve. It's something you learn to use. You, you call on it you, through mindfulness, through uh, uh, investigation of perfect seeing, of looking closely at the way things are. So that wisdom is, is not something that you're here to gain, but something you're, you're here to be encouraged and... Uh, to encourage to use. And so wisdom is something we, we use here, but we also use it everywhere, don't we? If not, wisdom is it at the Insight Meditation Society only. And when you go back to Boston and New York, then you go back and use ignorance. <laughs> but it, it'd say this is a kind of uh, a, a place to come to, to look to, in order to be encouraged, because we forget, we get lost, we get pulled into our habits and into the ignorance and stupidity of, of the society, and and we forget, we easily forget. So we need uh, things that remind us to be wise, to be awake, to be alert, to see clearly. So. The second noble truth is there is desire, and this attachment to desire, this just being caught into desires without question. We're so identified, so blinded by our desires, we can't see them. So we have to, we have to really make, put forth an effort to look at desire, not to judge it, not to, not to condemn it, 
not to suppress it, but to acknowledge it. There is this desire, this attachment, wanting to become something. Wanting, just notice when you sit in meditation, what it is like to, to want to get something from your meditation. What is that? Desire to become something, isn't it? Wanting to achieve. If, you, if you're feeling uh, down and you want to become tranquil, you want to become concentrated, you want to become something, that is uh, the bhavadana. Or you want to get rid of the pain, you want to get rid of the defilements, you want to get rid of the hindrances, want to get rid of this and that. And that is the vipavadana, or the desire to get rid of. So that you, an attachment to that. So that the insight is to let go. Letting go. Letting go of desire. Not getting rid of it. Letting go of it. And that, you, you have, it should be, you should let go of desire and then the through the practice of letting go, you practice. It's something you have to, you have to work with. Letting go of of desires. Then, what what is that? It's then when you let go of something, you know, don't you? So then, letting go of desire and the realization of that you have let go, then the the, the third noble truth, there is cessation. Desires, when you let go of them, they cease. Desires cease. They're not ultimate reality. Desire is not permanent. It's not absolute. It, it ceases. And so the, there is the cessation of desire. Now, cessation is subtle, isn't it? It's not something that, that ordinary people notice. Even though it goes on all the time, it's, it, we have to bring our attention to cessation. We have to really, really look closely at things, the way things cease in our minds. That when there's thoughts cease in your mind, feelings cease in your mind, desires cease in your mind, suffering ceases in your mind, everything ceases. So you, you're, you're with the uh, looking at the third noble truth, you are examining cessation, the way things cease. And some monks uh, I know in, in, in England are really, really surprised, really pleased me last uh, January. They're talking about really, really looking at the way things cease in their minds. They're observing more and more, using every situation, like the noise in a in a silent meditation, we have this, we have this old nun, 85-year-old nun, English woman. And 85-year-old people sometimes have annoying habits. <laughs> they can't help it because they're not trying to be disruptive. It's just that when you get old, your body does funny things and you, 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 your hearing's not very good, and so she, she makes sounds that in a silent meditation hall, in, in, and in Amravati, the meditation hall there is very, very silent. So every rustle of, of, a, of a robe is, is uh, exaggerated. Well, and not to mention any, anything more than that. <laughs> So, and this, this nun is very devoted to practice. She, 
that she was there every single <laughs> sitting. And so as I could tell, some of the, the, you know, you kind of observe the monks and nuns kind of bristling with irritation. <laughs> and on the interviews, talking to some of them, some of them use the situation for watching cessation. They take the, anything that, uh, during that hour, and observe the ending of it, like the ending of the sounds. They're looking at the way things end, the, the point where things cease and stop, just the sounds that this nun made, or the, or the whatever was going on in their minds. They, they decided to pay special attention to the ending or cessation of something that had arisen during that, in their, that they uh, were experiencing in that hour. So that this is what I mean, realization of cessation. So that this is what I mean, realization of cessation. Not just understanding the theory, but uh, or, or the idea, but actually applying it to, like, like in, in a situation here, to really observe the ending, the way, the way, like, the, the, things end and cease in your mind. Thoughts cease in your mind, like, I am a human being. It, the, you're observing the ending of that thought, a deliberate thought, and it ceases in the mind. And you're aware of the point where you're actually thinking the thought and when you're no longer thinking it. So you're aware that something has ceased. You're examining, realizing cessation. And then from that is the, is the um, insight into, then from that is right understanding or perfect seeing, samaditi. We have this, this Buddha wisdom, this knowledge then, clear understanding, all that arises ceases. And, and, and it's not just a, a kind of, um, it, it, uh, from the head, it's, it's something very, very powerful from, from way down deep inside, what they call gut knowledge or real insight, uh, in Pali, jnana dasana. Now this formula of the, then the, then say the, the Eightfold Path, we have insight into that, how to, well once you understand something, and there's, there's, that's an enlightened moment. Now, enlightenment, don't see that as, uh, I know that most people tend to see enlightenment as something far away from them, that you have to do three months retreat, you have to go to Burma, and then you have to spend all kinds of time doing special practices and doing and making it, and it sounds very, very complicated. Uh, but actually, enlightenment isn't complicated, it's, it's, it's in a moment, it's now. It's seen clearly here and now the way things are. So it's it's not something you'll ever get in the future. It's something you have to you 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 realize now. And in order to realize to be enlightened now means you have to be wise now and mindful now. And this this formula of the of the four noble truths is pointing always at the way things are now. It's not speculating about the future at all. It's about the way things are right now. All that arises ceases.
enlightenment then is merely the beginning. You haven't really begun, begun any of the path and, and uh, the spiritual life till there is enlightenment. So it's, it's not the end, it's the beginning. So then we, we develop the path, meaning when we have more enlightened moments, we, we, we put forth the, the kind of effort and mindfulness and concentration in, in the present moment to be enlightened more and more, to have now, to keep reminding ourselves, because we forget. So we, we have moments of enlightenment, then moments where we, we get lost again in confusion. But the more we keep reminding, remembering, bring, putting forth effort into our lives, uh, investigating, examining uh, suffering, origin, cessation, and developing this path, this eightfold path. So it always resolves to the present moment, the, what they call the Pachubana Dhamma, or the, the here and now truth, the truth of being here and now. And, and, or, and, they, they, and even though they use this four, four noble truths, even though it's divided into four, it's really one moment. Now the technique and methods are, can be helpful if, if they help us to let go of things. If, if we don't just attach to doing techniques and uh, to teachers, to traditions, to, to um, views and opinions about practice. And if, uh, all meditation techniques can be used skillfully or unskillfully. Now, there's nothing wrong with, with technique, but it's, if you don't examine suffering, its origin cessation in the and realize the path, then the techniques can be, we can grasp technique, or teachers, or traditions, and then that, it's like, uh, uh, you know, having a, 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 maybe a beautiful instrument that one just grasps and never learns how to play it. We never develop, never, we just, we just do the same thing over and over. I remember, in, in England, a man came to me, old man too, he was in his 70s. He says, Bhante, I've been practicing meditation for 20 years, and I'm nowhere, not enlightened, I, I've got nowhere. 20 years I've been doing this. What have you been doing? He'd been doing a technique over and over and over for 20 years. Now, have you ever reflected on it? Have you, ever, have you ever watched what you're doing? Have you ever really investigated what you're doing? Have you, have you really looked at suffering? Have you... Any, no? He thought that if he did this same thing over and over and over, something would happen and then kind of light from above and he'd be enlightened. So, uh, 20 years of, of loyal dedication to a technique without reflection, without investigation, just a conditioning process, isn't it? You're just doing 
the same thing over and over and you get used to it and you get tranquilized by it but it 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 can all uh, but then that such loyalty such uh, determination and loyalty without wisdom of course it it's better than doing a lot of things admittedly better than getting drunk and and uh watching television or <laughs> I mean, not putting it down and then and to 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 uh, attach to skillful, lovely, refined things is, is certainly better than being attached to coarse, crude, disgusting things. <laughs> but it's still not enlightenment. It's still suffering, in other words. It's still, you're still going to have this dukkha, as he did. He's obviously suffering a lot when he, when he asked me about it. Attachment to teachers. Yet, uh, people get very attached to, to what their teacher says. They believe their teacher. The teacher knows. The teacher knows everything. The teacher will tell me. The teacher will know where I am. The teacher knows how developed I am. The teacher is this way. The teacher is that way. Uh, you have, if you have a really famous teacher, or somebody says, this teacher really is enlightened, then you, then you think, I have an enlightened teacher. You aren't enlightened, though, are you? <laughs> you spend the rest of your life congratulating yourself for having an enlightened teacher and remain ignorant. Attachment to traditions. To any view or opinion, it's the attachment, isn't it? All these things are all right in themselves. Good teachers, enlightened teachers are, are a wonderful thing to have. Enlightened teachers and good techniques and traditions and all these things. There's nothing wrong. It's not like you have to throw away, get rid of your teacher, throw away your techniques, um, condemn all traditions. That's not the way because that's another attachment, isn't it? You're attached to the view that you have to get rid of this. But it's watching attachment, recognizing there is attachment there. Now, from, from my own experience, I've, I've been through this, so I know what I'm talking about. The, uh, with Ajahn Chah, for example, I became very attached to Ajahn Chah during the first few years. Uh, at first I was very suspicious. I thought, I'm I'm... I'm not an easy, you know, I'm a very doubtful, suspicious person by nature, so I thought, I'm not going to be taken in too easily by anyone. So when I first went there, I, uh, you know, I thought he was a nice, nice man, good enough, but I still was, you know, not going to kind of surrender myself too easily to anyone. <laughs> so I, I uh, eventually, uh, he charmed me and won me over. I became devoted. And then, I, uh, uh, but then I began to realize the suffering of being a devoted disciple and attached to the teacher because anybody that criticized, made any criticism whatsoever or implied that Ajahn Chah wasn't the absolute best of the best, then I was very upset, like very uh, resentful, very defensive. So and during that time, that I was very attached. We had some, like, uh, people 
Westerners come to the monastery and they say, if, if Ajahn Chah is so enlightened, why does he chew that disgusting betel nut? <laughs> I feel quite threatened by that. because I, <laughs> I wondered about that myself. <laughs> but they, they, uh, if you know what betel nut is, is, it's a really disgusting habit that people have in Thailand. They chew this this kind of nut, this uh, some kind of fruit, and mix it with lime and other things, and then it turns red in their mouth, and they spitting out this kind of blood red saliva into spittoons. <laughs> and and in the, like modern Thai people don't do it, but they in the northeast and the old people, and it turns your teeth black. You see, if you go to northeast Thailand, a lot of the old uh, men and women there have these black teeth. They smile and kind of black teeth. <laughs> repulsive when you've been brought up in the United States, the idea of having pearly white teeth. <laughs> Americans are very fond of having beautiful teeth, aren't they? they well, Ajahn Chah had false teeth, in fact. <laughs> and he had, he had three sets of false teeth. <laughs> There was one set that he used for greeting people when he wanted to be charming <laughs> that were very pearly white and pleased, pleased all the Americans. <laughs> then he could take them out right in front of you, which, which didn't please anybody. Mouth caved in and put the, his betel nut chewing teeth in. And then he had a, a third set for eating food. So there, there were three sets of false teeth. And so one, you know, this could bring doubt into your mind. <laughs> so when, when this, when this uh, person, this, this Westerner, started doubting, you know, I feel very defensive and threatened and, and react quite you know, negatively and, and aggressively. But then watching this, I began to examine this, this feeling of, of resentment and of, of being threatened when people started criticizing something or suspecting something or, or that I was very attached to, then there'd, there'd be this negative reaction. So that there is suffering, isn't there? There's this feeling of being threatened and, and defensive and apologetic even, so that you, you feel this, and there is this suffering. Then the, the origin of suffering is attachment to desire, the desire, I wanted everybody to agree with me. I wanted to convince, convert everybody to agree with my uh, attachment. And when they didn't, when they didn't, then I wanted to get rid of them. I feel like, why don't you go? Find your own teacher. <laughs> get lost. <laughs> desire to get rid of people who were threatening. So, so then, then the insight into letting go of the desire rather than, than, than getting rid of the people. <laughs> so I'd practice letting go and people started, if that happened, then I would use the situation to watch the, 
the, the reactions I had and, and, and really practice into, to have this insight to really know the way of letting go of the desire. And then the re- result would be that the, the desire would cease. There would be the, sense, the cessation of that desire and there would be peacefulness. One would feel quite peaceful when you let things cease naturally. That, that when you allow, allow things to cease naturally rather than, than through suppression or annihilation, then you find true peacefulness, true calm within your, with the mind itself, the, where things arise and cease. That is truly calm, truly bright, truly peaceful. So you, I began to experience cessation. Things would cease and, and I'd feel this calm, this peacefulness from not being bound and caught up in reactions and desires. In another, another example was, say, with jealousy. I, had, I, had a, I have a very jealous kind of character. So, but I hated it. I found, I found, I found jealousy was something that I didn't like in me. I, I was ashamed of it. So when I, when I was first at, with Ajahn Chah, I was the only Western monk, and I got all the attention. Fine, I, was, I, I liked to, people to pay attention to me, and special positions and everything. So I'd feel jealous. I think, I think the, the, this person's come here, and now, now they like him better than they like me. I'd feel this jealousy, envy. So then... I'd feel ashamed of it. I think, oh, I shouldn't feel like that. I should be glad that they're, you know, because the idealistic side of me wanted to be fully generous and magnanimous. Didn't want to be jealous. There was that 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 lovely kind of uh, grand, uh, all-loving bodhisattva that that wanted to just say, wonderful, how wonderful it is that 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 they like. Him better than they do me. <laughs> so I would try to, to be glad for them. I'm really, I'm really glad. I'm really glad that they like you better than me. Wonderful. But inside, it would be, you'd feel really, you know, you'd, you'd feel you still feel this, this jealousy and fear and, and resentment. And then you'd, then you'd react to it with hatred of yourself, hatred of, of yourself for being that way, and shame, feeling guilty and shameful about it. So I, I used to think, well, I've got to get rid of this jealousy. So I'd try, I'd really do everything. Say, I have this mudita, mudita is the cure for jealousy, being glad that the welfare and happiness of someone. And so I'd try, try to feel glad and happy. And uh, it just, you know, it was like putting on a mask. It didn't really, it, it didn't seem genuine. And, and the more I tried to convince myself I was glad and for these other people, I find I was even more, getting more jealous. It seemed to be a hopeless, hopeless situation. So then, using the Four Noble Truths for that, I thought, what is, what is really, this is suffering, isn't it? And I can't believe, is jealousy really suffering? 
And I began to watch this, this feeling of jealousy. And I began to see what was really suffering was wanting to get rid of jealousy. It was what was really miserable wasn't the jealousy, but the guilt about it and the desire to get rid of it. Because that was really strong, was the desire to get rid of it and the continuous attempt to suppress and deny it and, and, and uh, annihilate jealousy. So I thought, oh, there is this suffering. Then it's the grasping of the desire to get rid of it. So then let go of the desire to get rid of it. So then there's just the jealousy. And the jealousy comes and goes in your mind. It's just not permanent state of being. So it's just what it is. It, uh, it, you let it arise and it ceases, it's gone. So then I began to think, well, I'll just really be jealous then. I'm going to really look at jealousy rather than just react to it. So I began to just examine the, the jealousy and, and want, you know, because of the desire to, to, to uh, for praise, the desire to be special, desire to become something, uh, and also that, so that the, the desire, well, this, this, this desire, I, I let go of it. So eventually the jealousy would just cease in the mind. Then there'd be the peace when, of cessation. So that this was, this was, uh, and then of course the, it didn't become a problem anymore. One could let these tendencies fade out. One wasn't making a problem about them. Now, these are examples of how to use the, the, this investigation of the Four Noble Truths. Because this is what you can realize in, in uh, in your life. This applies not only to, to an ideal situation such as here uh, at IMS, but also in daily life. You, you can work with it when you, wherever you go, and wherever you work, in the suffering that you're experiencing, in, in relationships, and in uh, your professions, and whatever, whatever, wherever you happen to be. This is a, a way of reflecting on experience that you can learn from. Whatever, it, whatever happens to be the form of suffering that you're grasping in, in any given moment. Say in an ideal situation like this, where, where everything is kind of supportive and helpful and toned down and silent and quiet and, and all that, it's, you can, it helps to, to uh, maybe look at things uh, and to begin to experience say, a sense of calm and to realize the true nature of mind, which is truly peaceful. But then if you grasp IMS, you'll have suffering. You grasp the, the, what you've done here, and then as soon as you go, you'll start suffering. Oh, I've got to get back on the, into those silent retreats. and I can't stand the world anymore. <laughs> because if you grasp the, uh, the peace of mind and the, the, the silence and the, and the calm and the discipline and the, and the technique you're using and the situation you're in, then when it changes, you suffer. So really notice the suffering involved in grasping a technique, uh, in grasping uh, a situation such as IMS, uh, grasping a viewpoint, an opinion, 
this grasping, is to be admitted, to, to really recognize it and see it, and then you, the insight into letting go. Now, when you let go, and you really understand the way of letting go, then you begin to realize that the true nature of mind, which is peaceful, because everything ceases. So everything becomes Dhamma for you. Everything is helping you to realize cessation, even what before seemed to be a terrible obstacle or a, a hopeless flaw in your character or uh, a bad misfortune or bad luck. All of it, whatever is, is really, uh, you know, your, your particular uh, fault or problem or obsession, when you begin to look at it through the Four Noble Truths, you see it in a, in, in a way that it actually is enlightening for you. It's Dhamma, it's truth. It, all, all these things arise and they cease in your mind. Now the insight of, of letting go, they, of uh, realization of cessation, You have you one thing, you, you realize that everything is impermanent. All conditions are impermanent. All sankaras are impermanent. So that this you, you look at in your mind, not just from the from the the understanding the, the words, but you when things arise and cease, they arise from where and they cease where? When a thought ceases, what's left? When a feeling ceases, what's left? When, when fear ceases, or jealousy ceases, or, or desire ceases, what's left? And this you have to, to know for yourself, because there's, there's no self. There's anatta. There's, not the, 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 there's, still, there's still awareness, there's wisdom, but it's no longer... Identif- there's no longer identity with conditions, and that's what we mean by anatta. There's not this illusion of a self as a jealous person, or uh, greedy, or frightened, or uh, with problems, uh, with being anything at all. Because uh, the, this, this knowing, this wisdom, awareness, is, is not personal. It has no, it has no condition quality to it. But it is truly peaceful, truly wise, truly serene, calm, clear, bright. You can call that yourself if you want, but there's no need to call it anything. (laughs) There's no need to name it because it's what is truly, what is ultimately real. But as long as we are identified through the ignorance with desires, fears, conditions of the mind, emotions, memories, all this, as long as we are identified with that, then we, we go up and we go down, we, we go all over the place. We're being born and dying all the time in our minds. We're always grasping at things, running about, running away trying to control, trying to manipulate, trying to just annihilate. We can just sleep all day. When you're depressed, when, when one gets depressed, you want to sleep all the time. You don't want to have to get up in the morning. 
and everything is so dreary and depressing. And you look forward, the, when you're depressed, everything looks like you're going to be miserable forever. When you're really down, you can't imagine ever being happy again, can you? People that are depressed, uh, they can't imagine that they'll ever have a moment of happiness ever again. Life just looks completely dreary forever and ever. And somebody says, oh, it's just a passing phase, you know, the world is one of them. Shut up, it's miserable. <laughs> because you can't really imagine even that, 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 that for you life will ever have a bright moment in it ever again. When you're, when you're attached to depression, because you're, that's what you believe you are. You are depressed, and that's what you believe in. That's the way it seems. That's the appearance. But if you examine, the depression is attachment, isn't it? When you're depressed, you're attached to some, to, to some form of suffering, to some desire. And so then you, you, can, you can begin to observe attachment. Look at attachment, examine what, what we mean by grasping or attachment, clinging. Now, because the way our mind works, sometimes when we, we, we think we're letting go and we're actually annihilating, we're getting rid of things. Remember at Chithurst, years ago, there was one of the, we used to say, you know, all meditation in a kind of um, techniques or, or groups or communities develop a kind of language, in-group language. So that, they say, watching the mind, you know, be one who, the silent watcher, looking at the nature of the mind. When there's anger, examine the anger. So the monks and nuns, Anagarikas used to say, when somebody's getting angry, watch your mind! <laughs> They'd, you'd hear that in the kitchen, and it, it cooks, were, and somebody would get upset, and, and instead of saying, shut up, they'd say, watch your mind, watch your mind. Ajahn <laughs> <laughs> well, Tomato says, watch your mind. <laughs> so then they, this, was, this is a, a taking something and misusing it, isn't it? That, obviously the person saying that wasn't watching their mind. <laughs> So letting go isn't 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 getting rid of. It's it's a very gentle, peaceful thing to to let something go, to allow something to go away. Another another example is say in uh, uh, say uh, a, a metaphor for this, like the when you're letting go of something, you're allowing say prisoners to escape from your mind. So you all your life you've been holding these prisoners in your mind, the kind of greed, greedy prisoners, prisoners filled with hatred, prisoners filled with delusions. And every time they start to get out, you push them back in and lock the door. <laughs> and you become one, like a, 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 a jailer, or a, someone who's continually closing the door on these prisoners and trying to hold them back. Because you're afraid that if they get loose, they'll take you over, they'll destroy you. So you, 
you're determined to keep them in the prison. So all your efforts in your life is just as a kind of jailer for these prisoners. You know, all you're doing is locking, keep locking the door, closing them. Every time they, they get just a little, you know, like a, a toehold or a foot inside the door, you slam it shut again. Make sure they don't... So that all the time, all your attention has to be on keeping the doors closed. Then, say, as you... Then you have the insight into letting them go. So you open the doors. And then they all come out. So what comes out might be pretty frightening sometimes. It's, the prisoners can be very ugly and menacing and, and uh, dreadful and, and, and undesirable in their appearance. But they're escaping, they're going away. How kind of you to let them go. <laughs> they're going away, they're not, they're not harming you anymore. Even though they, they look threatening, you'll find that they, that they just cease, they go away from you, not, there's nothing left. And then the mind, where there's nothing left, there's still wisdom, there's clarity, peacefulness. That's your true nature. And it, but it's not, it's not any, anybody's nature, it's, it's what is ultimately real and true. And this can be realized, but each one of us has to realize it. I mean, we don't have to, but I recommend that you realize <laughs> If you want to remain miserable, then that's your decision, isn't it? So now if you'll take a, a short break. <laughs>